Our New Testament reading this morning comes from the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verses 1 to 2. We're going to be continuing on in a series that I started almost right at five years ago. So thank you for hanging in there uh, on the Apostles' Creed. We're going to be looking at communion of the saints and using this passage, among others, to give shape to our understanding and practice of that teaching from the Creed. Hear now the word of the Lord from the book of Hebrews. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, help us in these few minutes that we have together to um, receive you. You are present among us. You walk among the lampstand of your churches and you are with us this morning, not just as some sentimental idea that we aspire to, but as the living and true God who dwells in us and among us. And so we pray that you would. Um, enliven our hearts and minds so that we would respond in a way that we look a little bit more like you to each other and to the world. And we pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So in the second century, 1800 years ago, when Christianity uh, was brand new and starting to get traction, because it was getting traction, it also started to get opponents. This was primarily opponents in the Roman Empire. Uh, It was mainly philosophers, but it was also politicians and folks like that who thought that Christianity uh, was absurd. It was morally perverse and not believable. And it definitely should be rejected by those from the Roman Empire who were considering it. And it should be abandoned by those who were already within within its fold, within the church's fold. So as you might expect... One of the results was that Christians were not going to let that aggression stand. Christians responded. And one of the most prominent defenders of the faith was a man named Origen. It kind of looks like Oregon, but it's pronounced Origen. And he wrote a whole book of apologetics. And apologetics is just the explanation for the believability of Christianity, sometimes offering refutations to challenges. So he wrote a whole book uh, countering one guy in particular, this, this philosopher, Roman philosopher named Celsus. But it's interesting, at the very beginning of the book, he said something that I think is interesting, and I think you'll find it interesting too, because he basically said this, and it's, it's an interesting way to start a book. Jesus doesn't need me to write this book. Uh, he doesn't need me to do this. He doesn't, in fact, really need a defense. Now, why did uh, Origen say this? I'm going to give you a little quote from his book, and it's called Contra Celsus. He says this, Jesus is always being falsely accused, and there's never a time when he is not being accused. He is still silent in the face of this and does not answer with his own voice. But he makes his defense in the lives of his genuine disciples, for their lives cry out the real facts and defeat all false charges. So this second century Christian intellectual reading scripture concluded 
that the best case to be made for the reality of God in Christ is his people. Is Christians individually and collectively. That, Origen claimed, is the real proof, the real evidence, the real argument for the reality of the resurrection and presence of God in Christ. If I can put it a little bit more personally, what Origen is saying is that the saints, the communion of saints, the Christians gathered at Ascension Presbyterian Church prove to Hillsborough that Jesus is Lord and worthy of worship. That this community is the evidence that demands a verdict. Now, does that sound like a little bit too bold of a claim for you? A little bit too much? You think, how, how could that be? Is that, in fact, the place that you start whenever you're wanting to commend Jesus to others? The communion of the saints, the gathered people of God, is more than just a holy huddle. It is more than just a very intense book club. But in fact, it is something that is alive and even divine and active. So when we confess the communion of saints, like we're going to do here in just a few minutes, there are several things that we are saying, but I just want to focus on two of two of those things for this morning. And the first one is this, that the saints, the people of God, the communion of saints, the saints in communion and fellowship with each other is the very presence of Jesus Christ in the world. Full stop. We are the presence of Christ. Y'all are the presence of Christ in Hillsborough. You see, the reason that Origen could make the claims that he does about Christians being the proof of Jesus is because Scripture teaches this in multiple places. In places like 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians chapter 2, 1 Peter 2. Let me just read one of them, though, from the book of Romans, right? We're reformed. We always go to Romans. Uh, Romans chapter 12, verse, starting in verse 4. Paul says this, for as in one body, we have many members and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. You see here, and especially in places like first Corinthians 12, Paul uses the language of the body to talk about the church, the communion of saints, about God's people as having a real presence in the world. And a body is something that is concrete, right? It is physical. It can do things. There is a organic connection among the members of the body. A body can go places. It's not just some idea. It's not just some, something ghostly, but it is real tactile, right? Now, what makes the physical body distinct and unique, or that physical body, the church, uh, distinct and unique as a community of people, is that it is connected to, mysteriously, but really, Jesus Christ. It is made alive by Jesus Christ. It is energized by Jesus Christ. It is flooded with the very life of Jesus Christ. Question. Have you ever read 
Mary Shelley's book, Frankenstein. Or maybe seen the movie. There's actually one of the very first movies ever made was a, a version of Frankenstein, 1910. You'll remember, I think everyone knows the story. I'll just kind of rehash at least part of it. In the story, there is a doctor. Some would say a mad doctor, but we'll just say a doctor here who literally pieces together from the corpses of different uh, bodies, all these parts. And from the parts of the different body, he forms a new and unique body and then reanimates it. He zaps it and gives it life. That, y'all, is something like what the communion of saints is. That there are different parts that are brought together to form a new and living creation, an organic life. Oh, pastor, how could you compare the communion of saints to Frankenstein's monster? Very easily, friends, and not cynically at all. Because you remember, if you read from your own reading of Ephesians 2, it's clear that before individually we were in Christ, we were what? Spiritually dead. But now, what makes the church glorious is not that we individually are beautiful on our own or even collectively sometimes beautiful on our own or that we're not sometimes ragged or rough looking, which is true, but rather the communion of saints, the church, the saints gathered are glorious because we have been brought together and made alive and joined together by one who is great, by one who is beautiful. By one who gives us his life, Jesus Christ. He is our electricity. You see, we have life and purpose and direction as a community because we have this mysterious union with Jesus. And as we see, in fact, in Hebrews, we are also bound together with those saints, those Christians. And somehow we're still in communion with those who have went before us, that great cloud of witnesses, the saints in glory. And with them, we long for the resurrection and renewal of all things. So how then do we have that mysterious union with Jesus? That connection, that electricity that gives us Jesus life is the Holy Spirit. And we actually see see this talked about prophetically in Psalm 133 that we heard read for us earlier. You see, in that um, short psalm, we are told that the dwelling of fellow worshipers, worshipers of God together is good. And then we have this interesting, almost messy imagery. It describes the fellowship as being like oil coming down over the head and beard of Aaron to the opening of his robe. Now, what's going on? Why does that describe fellowship? Who was Aaron? All right. Aaron was the brother of Moses. Aaron was the first priest of God's people. As the first priest or as the priest of God's people, he would go into the tabernacle. What's the tabernacle? The tabernacle was simply the place where God's physical presence dwelt. And Aaron would go in there to represent the people of God, Israel, to God. And then represent God to the people of God, to Israel. So when Aaron went into the tabernacle, he wore these wonderful, blinged out priestly garments. He wore a robe and then he wore this one vest type thing called an ephod. Won't go into the details of the ephod. 
Eric can do a sermon on that. But one of the things that was on the ephod were these two black stones in onyx. And on the stones were engraved the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. So he was literally going into God's presence as a priest, carrying the people of God to the Lord. And then in Psalm 133, we also see this oil drizzling down onto Aaron's clothes, including onto his ephod, going over the names on these onyx stones of the people of God on them. What's the big deal about that? Oil was associated with anointing and blessing, and most importantly, the coming of the Holy Spirit. So in, one, in Psalm 133, we see the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on God's people, picturing what ultimately happens where? Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit is poured out and all kinds of different people are brought together and made into a community, God pieces together something new, something that was dead is now made alive and into a holy communion. And, then, and, then, and that unity, that life we share And Jesus comes to us and is energized by the Holy Spirit. We are a Holy Spirit community. You could even say we have Holy Ghost power. Now, what does the Spirit of Jesus do in that communion of saints? What makes this communion distinct from all other clubs and groups and organizations that might be even meeting right now that are not Christian? And this is the second point. The communion of saints is a community of Jesus and of His grace and His renewal. You see, to be grouped with other Christians, you are doing it solely, simply, primarily for the sake of Jesus. You are captivated by Jesus. You are compelled by Jesus. You seek Jesus. You submit to Jesus. You imitate Jesus. You learn from Jesus. The stories of Jesus, especially in the Gospels, are what shape you and what form you. You seek Jesus in one another. You are marked by Jesus in baptism. And you share in his life by the power of the Spirit in the Eucharist, in the Lord's Supper. You see, we don't cluster together. We don't commune together because we have simply the same skin color or we vote the same. or We make about the same amount of money, or at least that's not supposed to be the case. Rather, we have gathered around the feet of Jesus because for each of us individually and collectively, this itinerant preacher from Roman occupied Israel by his example in teaching 2000 years ago has shown us True life has shown us true love, has shown us real hope, and has shown us the true face of God. Question. Is Jesus Christ what compels you? Is he the one that brings you here? How does he influence what it means for you all to be the communion of saints. Ascension Presbyterian here in Hillsboro. You see, there are plenty of things that can drive you to cl- 
cluster together among God's people that aren't necessarily of first importance. They might be important. They might be good, but they're not of first importance. So I'll give you an example. In Texas, when I was growing up in the 90s, there was an expectation that almost everyone was a, a Christian because you're in Texas, right? And there was social pressure as a result to be present at church. There was a, an expectation. Now, sometimes that expectation can be good, a, a kind of positive peer pressure, but sometimes it can, it, it can flip on you. And so I knew of the case, multiple cases, my wife can attest to this, not because she did it, because she knows about these stories too, that there would be college kids who would skip church, but then they would go meet their friends for lunch dressed up in the coat and tie and the Sunday dress because they wanted to give the appearance as if they had gone to church. They simply were faking it because they felt that pressure, but they were not really compelled because of a love or a drive or desire to be with Jesus. Now you're thinking, well, thanks for the time machine visit, but that is not when we live or where we live. That social pressure doesn't exist for us anymore. At least it doesn't exist for us here. If you're coming to church, especially in 2024 in Oregon, um, the, the pressure might actually work in the other direction. Why do you go to church? That's kind of weird. That just seems kind of exotic, but there can be a twist on the can't there that would be that is corrosive to our souls you see when there's no social pressure to go but you still go you can end up coming as a marker of self-righteousness not jesus righteousness right with this maybe subtle or maybe overt expression of i'm, I'm better than those people that don't go to church i'm i'm not floating around just kind of believing in myself i'm not a relativist i'm not a whatever and I just want to say that is not the way to think about it. That is false. That is deadly. It is corrosive to your soul, to your really to your understanding of the gospel. Because you see, the buy-in to be a part of the communion of saints, really just to even be a saint, a holy one, is that you realize in and of myself, I am not holy. In fact, what I am is needy. And I see that my need is met and the promises are fulfilled in Jesus. To be a part of the communion of saints means you aren't convinced that you're necessarily right about everything and have it together, but rather you have been humbled and know that life is truly found for you and among your brothers and sisters in the person of Jesus Christ. That grace alone, God's grace alone, his mercy alone is sufficient and causes you to stand. To be a part of the communion of saints means to believe that healing starts with this Jewish teacher from the first century. That his example, his teaching, his offering of his very life for sinners, sinners who he chooses to call friends, is your life, is your story, compels you spiritually, morally, socially, more than anything else. So will you continue to be a community of joyful humility, of patient welcome toward one another and towards those who are outside your fold? You see, Ascension might be that place where Jesus is present to Hillsboro because you all take Jesus seriously, but you don't take yourselves too seriously. 
that you have care for those who are different than you, worse off than you, in some cases better off than you, that you have care and concern and patience with those who are bigger hypocrites than you. And friends, we're all hypocrites. We're all trying to be whole people, and that's okay. What will that community look like? What will it feel like? What will be the, the oil that causes the gears of this community to go? I just want to give you one last thought on this. Because there are, really there's two approaches to ministry. Two approaches to Christian life, to Christian community. And it's this. If you think people are too free then the focus of your ministry, the focus of your Christian presence is going to be to try and bind them. To try and bind them with law. To enact moral regulation. To enact behavior modification. But if you think that people are bound, then your goal, your desire, is going to be to see them free. I'll just cut to the chase. Jesus came to set people free. Whether it was those who were possessed by demons or those who were confused family members of his, whether it was straying disciples or even his own theological opponents, scribes, Pharisees, elders. For Jesus, none of these people were objects of legal strategy for change. Rather, he offered them truth and he offered them Grace, a grace that called for them to surrender, but also a grace that enabled them to be new creation, a new body, a new community. So when people, when you maybe, behave badly, or mess up their lives, whether it's people who are Christians or people who are not, be the kind of Christian community. Be the kind of congregation that those folks will not hesitate to call you, especially in the worst moments of their life. Middle of the night, police station, whatever it is, when they see you, when they experience you, us, would they see, would they experience, would they taste the grace the mercy, the holiness of Jesus that energizes us by the Spirit, that His cross and resurrection is what fuels us, empowers us, and gives us hope to be present as the community, the communion of saints in the world. Let's pray. Lord, we pray for our whole lives our ministry, this church's ministry, to simply be downstream of your love for us through Christ. Would it run into us and through us in such a way that there is love and life found for others and found for us in a way that we would recognize and celebrate and give you worship and praise for. We ask all this in the name of the Father the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.